All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. Here we go now with the B.C. election. October 24th is voting day in B.C. It is the first full day of the campaign today. Premier John Horgan, Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson, Green Party leader Sonia Furstenau, they all have campaign events today. This is your election central here. On this show, we will focus on this election campaign like a laser. So please make sure you join me here every day as we cover for you this battle for BC. All right, first full day of the election campaign. There is already controversy, especially in the riding of Stikine. Now, this is an NDP-held riding in northern British Columbia. Doug Donaldson was the NDP MLA there. He was the Minister of Forests. He announced he was not running again. Now, this is where the controversy kicks in. The NDP has what's known as its equity mandate. It is an affirmative action program that has been in the party for many years. It is designed to get more underrepresented groups into politics. Here's the way it works. If a male MLA for the party announces he is not running again, the equity mandate says the next candidate is required to be from an underrepresented community, a woman, an indigenous person, a person of a, a racial minority, a disabled person, or a member of the LGBTQ community. Unfortunately, potential superstar candidate Nathan Cullen, the former MP, is a straight white guy. So how can he run in this riding? The NDP has named him as the candidate. Hang on a second here. What about the equity mandate? I'm going to introduce you in a moment here to Anita McPhee. She is an indigenous leader in British Columbia. She grew up in this riding. She wants to run for the party in this riding. She has a fine resume. She would be a good candidate. They have told her, no, you can't run. We're putting in this superstar instead, Nathan Cullen. How does this work under this equity mandate? I had Cullen on the show yesterday. I asked him straight up, what about this equity mandate? Will you step aside now for Anita McPhee to run instead? Here's what he told me. No, because as soon as the equity mandate, uh, the rules were followed, right? So the equity mandate, they did a search. They were unsuccessful, I believe, in that search. Again, this is not my work. Okay, no, he will not step aside what about this equity mandate though okay let's find out what's going on here my guest is anita mcphee she is a longtime indigenous leader in the province former president of the taltan central government i'm very pleased to welcome her to the show anita thank you very much for coming on good morning thanks okay. for having me thanks a lot for coming on when you found out that doug donaldson was stepping down and you decided to you wanted to run for the party here tell me the steps that you went through here and how did this all go off the rails here for you so I was surprised to hear that Doug Donaldson was retiring on Monday. Yeah. And then on Tuesday, I announced on Facebook that I wanted to run as an MLA in the Stikine riding because that's where I'm from. I grew up in Telegraph Creek. Yeah. And then Wednesday, Nathan Cullen announced that he was running and he released a video yeah. saying that he was running. I requested a package, a nomination package. I never l received my package till late that night. Friday, I submitted my papers on Friday night, and I never heard back until Sunday night that there was questions around um, around my signatories, and we quickly responded. We sent it in proof of membership for my signatories, and then I find out that Nathan Cullen is the candidate on Monday. 
Okay, the party has said that there were some problems with your nomination papers, as you mentioned. They said they worked with you to resolve the problems, but they said by the time that the problems were resolved, that it was too late. It was too late for you to run. What do you but think of that? Too, ex- go ahead. But was it too late? Because right <laughs> now in this province, some people haven't even named their candidate yet, some yeah. parties and yeah. some ridings. And quite honestly, you know, that's just one of the many weak excuses that have been given to me for that, that I'm the reason I'm not allowed to run for that party. I mean, there's a clearly this equity mandate is being ignored. Yeah, the party has also put out a statement saying that at some point you were involved with uh, trying to seek a nomination for the federal NDP in an election in the past, and and that they said that you were you were bad mouthing the NDP, you were you're trashing the NDP, and said you'd never wanted anything to do with the NDP again. That's what that's what the party is saying about you now. Did did you really say that? And clearly, to rely on hearsay to pre- when you're proceeding in a candidate search is no. is another unfair. And another one of the weak excuses given to me why I shouldn't be able to run, because I wasn't asked those questions. I wasn't even approached, and I wasn't even asked if that was true or not. And, you know, I did run for a member of parliament um, to be the NDP candidate last year. Yes, that is true. And I was discouraged with the process because as an Indigenous person, you know, there's, it's, it, it was a very short time frame. I didn't have a lot of resources. I was disgruntled with the process. And, you know, during that campaign, I wasn't right. disgruntled with the NDP. Because you know what? I've been a big fan of NDP all my life. The, it's, been a, it's been a party in my riding since I was a child. There's been lots of people I've looked up to in the NDP. And Nathan Cullen himself has done great work for the NDP in our riding. Okay, let me play another clip here for you from Nathan Collin here, Anita. Here, he, This was him uh, on yesterday. He has now been installed as the NDP candidate in the riding, despite this equity policy that the party has. And I asked him about that, and he said, well, the party is already equitable. Here's what he told me. The party in this government has got more than 50, I believe 50 or just slightly above 50% representation of men and women equity uh, candidates in their caucus and in their cabinet right now, which I think you, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's the first time in British Columbia's history. So they've got a, a outstanding track record of bringing more voices to the table. Okay, it's Nathan Cullen on the show yesterday. I, I guess the point he's trying to raise there is that there's already enough equity in the party, so you know we don't need to cancel his nomination to put to allow you to run. But what are your thoughts on that? You know, when it comes to equity, it's more than a ratio of men to women. The equity mandate is there for a reason. It's created to create diversity in the riding, to to attract strong, diverse leaders such as myself who, you know, I have a law degree, I have a social work degree, I'm a seasoned politician, you know, I'm an incredible justice advocate, work, you know, all across this province, and to say that it's that they have their equity mandate met because they have 50% women, well, that's simply not true. There's, it's, it's, it's more than that. It's you, more you, than that. How do you feel about this whole thing? Do you feel like the party has betrayed you or thrown you under the bus? I mean, how, do you, how are you feeling about this today? I'm just feeling like I'm, I'm, I'm disheartened and I'm disappointed that, 
you know, this has happened to me because I've had incredible support, you know, from many chiefs in our riding who rallied behind me so quickly. They were excited at the prospects of having a strong Indigenous woman running in the election. And even now, I've received many messages from people across this country who have offered their support, including NDP um, representatives and I think everyone has seen that this has been an unfair and unclear process for me today. Do you think? Do you think they've done this to you because clearly they wanted Nathan Cullen to run a former MP, uh, you know, potential kind of star candidate for for the uh, for the party, and even though he was a like a straight, able-bodied white guy, doesn't meet the equity mandate. Well, we can't let you run because then we can't let our superstar run. Like, is this just a special deal for him? Is that what you think it is? I just think that it's a, you know, because of the timing and all of the, you know, reasons that were given to me, I just, I just think that it's really unfair the way this, this process has rolled out. Is there anything you can do about it now? Can you fight it? Can you appeal? I'm considering appealing this nomination. How would you, how would you do that? Is there an appeal process in the party? Yes, there is. Okay. All right. Have you got a lawyer? Talk to a lawyer at all? <laughs> um, there's a lot of people who are supporting me in this process, and at this point, you know, I'm considering it. Um, I, I believe that, you know, as an Indigenous person, as a, um, it's important to to advocate and to continue to, you know, encourage strong leaders and, and new yeah. leaders to, to run, and that's why... You know, if if there's any reason why I would want to do that, it would be for that reason that, you know, there's a diver there's a equity mandate created for a reason to yeah. attract diversity, and in my riding, it's really important. Thirty three percent of the the voters in that area are indigenous, and it's the biggest indigenous representation in the whole province. You know, Nathan Cullen has done an excellent job as an MP, but to ignore this mandate says, you know, it's it's not a good way to start off the election. Anita, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. A few hours ago, I met with the Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia, Janet Austin, and she has granted my request to dissolve the Legislative Assembly, and the general election will be held in British Columbia on Saturday, October 24th. All right, John Horgan, of course, speaking yesterday with that snap election call, October 24th, that is the date of the election in British Columbia. We're off and running now. It is the first full day of the campaign. Interesting, Horgan's first campaign event later on this morning, North Vancouver. They're desperate to hang on to that seat up there that Bowen Ma won unexpectedly in the last election. She knocked off a Liberal cabinet minister up there. So I'm very interesting he chooses that on day one. Uh, Andrew Wilkinson, the Liberal leader's got an event here coming up here shortly. So we are off and running in this election campaign. Now think about this. Horgan's election call clearly a broken promise. He had a deal with the BC Green Party that he would not do this. We've got an effect. We have a fixed election date law in our province that says the election is supposed to be held a year from now in October of 2021. Uh, doesn't matter. He's called the election anyway, right in the middle of a pandemic. This is a high risk, high reward strategy for Horgan. He's rolling the dice here. He knows there could be a backlash to this, but he feels like he's got a big enough lead that it doesn't matter. He'll get a majority government 
anyway. High risk, high reward. Let's take a little deep dive in some of the opinion polling on this and find out what British Columbians think about this snap election call now. My guest is Greg Lyle. He's the president of Innovative Research Group, and it's really nice to talk to him again. Hi, Greg. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great, Greg. Thanks a lot for coming on. You've done some interesting polling here in British Columbia, and let's take a look, first of all, at the poll you did on British Columbians' attitudes to uh, toward this snap election. And I, I thought it was funny on Twitter, this jumped out at me, that if there's one thing, that they're already at each other's throats already this morning here, but if there's one thing that NDPers and Liberals can agree on, it's that this election is a bad idea. Uh, tell me what you found out there in your poll. Well, it was unexpected. Um, that we asked people, is it a good idea or a bad idea? And we provided no context to it. So we didn't say anything about Horgan might be considering this, nothing about the agreement. We just asked people on first blush, do you think having an election now is a good idea or a bad idea? Mm-hmm. Over half of British Columbians said it's a bad idea. And 62% of both the PC Liberal supporters and the NDP supporters said it was a bad idea. Okay, so even Horgan supporters there uh, leaning to NDP support, they think this is right. a bad idea. How about did any? many people think it was a, a good idea? Um, less than 20%. Yeah. So, But that will change, right? Because what happens is that that was, we asked people about their preference in the absence of them really being all that engaged in the public debate. So less than half the public last weekend heard anything at all about politics, right? I mean, they're just not not that into politics, particularly here in B.C. right now. And so for a lot of people, the first time they're going to hear about it is when they see Horgan on television talking about his reasons for a call. And what you would normally expect to see is what we call confirmatory bias, which is New Democrats will now say, well, if Horgan says it's a good idea, it's a good idea. Right. And Liberals and Greens will say, well, if he says it's a good idea, it's a bad idea. Right. Your poll was done, I believe, on, on the weekend before the election call, correct? Yeah, yes. Yeah. It was done. In fact, it's still the last couple of interviews are happening since the call. But it's, um, you know, the issue is, you know, will it matter at the end of the day? And, you know, let's say it does. Let's say that, um, you know, he that you're, you're making a case that you can't trust Horgan. You say, well, he broke his promise, uh, his written promise to, to continue to uh, run the House with the Greens, that right. he's, uh, he's broken his party's commitment to allow uh, whenever a male candidate steps down to replace them with um, someone from a disadvantaged group. Yes. Um, and, you know, pick your favorite thing for a third one. The question would be, so what? Because when we look at leadership attributes, um, this was in the summer, we found Horgan, when we asked people what leader uh, was best represented by the word strong leadership, 48% said Horgan, 11% said Andrew Wilkinson. When we said competence, 48% said Horgan, 12% said uh, Wilkinson. And, and, you know, breaking a promise isn't necessarily going to impact image, his image of being strong and competent. It may impact uh, dishonest, as an example, but honestly, I mean, it's not a man-bites-dog headline to say politician breaks promise. Interesting. Yeah, okay, so Horgan's got a big lead over the liberal leader there in terms of approval rating in the public. I'm I'm certain this was a factor in the NDP's decision to roll the dice here in this snap election campaign. They feel they love the matchup here between Horgan and Andrew Wilkinson. Horgan appears to be far ahead. 
I've had some NDP insiders tell me that they think Horgan's going to clean Wilkinson's clock here in, in a in a debate. I'm not so sure about that because I remember the last time that those two guys had a debate, uh, it was during the uh, the referendum we had here on proportional representation, and I thought Wilkinson clearly beat Horgan in that debate, but we'll see. Well, we'll Wilk- Wilkinson yeah. is trained as a lawyer, right? Correct. I mean, he's a Rhodes Scholar. He's a lawyer. He's a doctor. He's a competent, capable person. Um, he will likely do okay in the debate. The question is, um, you know, can he do well enough to knock Horgan on his heels because Horgan is coming in here with the lead. Yeah, he's got the lead for sure. When you take speaking to Greg Lyle from Innovative Research about some of the polling data we are seeing here in British Columbia, what about uh, as as this campaign begins, Greg? Where where is the public at in terms of party preference in British Columbia? Has the NDP got a big lead? Well, on most polls, yes, but the answer is that it's quite volatile um, because the the issue right now is we're in the midst of a COVID rally. So um, in B.C., this is not true all across the country, but it's true here in Ontario and Quebec, for example. Um, uh, the public has, has rallied to the way the governments have responded to this crisis. And the result of that has been those numbers I talked about before, that not only do people say that the government's doing a good job on COVID-19, and that's pulling up overall government satisfaction, but it's also uh, building the brand of the premiers. And so, you know, it's sort of most dramatic with Doug Ford in Ontario, where he was right. quite a dislike character. Now he's very well regarded. But Horgan went from being sort of a little bit more likes and dislikes, maybe 8 10%, to now being plus 37, plus 40 in terms of favorables to unfavorables. And then with with the the strong and competent numbers going up as well. So those are all very positive for them. The one, the one thing that's sort of interesting, though, is remember before COVID, there was a, a major effort um, being led by the NDP to brand the BC Liberals as uh, corrupt and incompetent, uh, a lot of negative publicity around ICBC, a lot of negative publicity around money laundering. That stuff we haven't heard anything about for six months. And so the, the one good thing for the Liberals is that, well, you know, the NDP have had this big COVID rally. On the other hand, people haven't been hearing a lot of bad things about the BC Liberals for, you know, half a year now. Okay, interesting. Speaking of Greg Lyle, Innovative Research. Greg, let me play this clip here for you. Here is Premier John Horgan uh, speaking yesterday as he announces this snap election, and he comments here on why he thinks this is the right time to do this. I believe the best way forward is to put the politics behind us. Let's address the differences we may have now so that we can all come together after the 24th of October, focused as we should be on the needs of all British Columbians. I firmly believe that this is not a 12-month exercise. We have four years ahead of us where we all need to work together. And for 12 months to wait for the next election seems to me to be time wasted. <laughs> okay, when I, when I heard him say that yesterday, it's time to put the politics behind us, and that's why he's calling this election. I, I just about, I just about gagged. I couldn't believe it. Like you can't get anything more political than what he's doing here to try and take advantage of the, these polls with this snap election. But Greg, let me ask you this: Does this have the potential to backfire on on Horgan? Because I've seen it happen before, and I know you have too. Sure. I mean, I mean, let, let's go back to the Gordon Wilson breakthrough in 1991. Right, where uh, both the Socreds and the NDP had people angry and disillusioned at him. And Gordon Wilson said, 
we can do better. And so the green leader in this next debate will have an opportunity to be able to make that argument. Um, And Horgan will not have an easy time uh, ducking that. Um, But all that being said, it is very rare for a politician to be able to do a Gordon Wilson or a Sharon Carstairs. Um, You know, there's maybe, I mean, I'm hard-pressed to pick another case where that happened, where a third-party mood emerged from nothing. Even with Jack Layden, um, the NDP had been sort of around. They'd been the half-party in our two-and-a-half-party system. So um, it'll be interesting to see whether the Greens can make something of it. All right, Greg, interesting data for sure. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about some of the uh, recently announced COVID-19 restrictions in uh, British Columbia, including bars and restaurants now need to stop serving liquor at 10 p.m. Isn't it interesting that the United Kingdom just announced that pubs in the U.K., We'll have to shut down at 10 p.m. as well. You heard that on your news with U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson announcing a new package of restrictions there. Yeah, last call for a pint over in uh, jolly old England, 10 p.m. now. Same as B.C. Stop serving liquor at 10 p.m. Have a listen to this. This is uh, Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, making, those, uh, making that announcement. Effective today, all nightclubs and all standalone banquet halls are ordered closed until further notice. In addition, liquor sales in all bars, pubs, and restaurants must cease at 10 p.m., and these venues must close at 11 p.m., unless they're providing full meal service, in which case the meal service can continue but not serve alcohol. Okay, Dr. Bonnie Henry, about two weeks into this new order now, has it been helping to stop the spread of COVID-19? And how are businesses doing under these new restrictions? Let's check in with Jeff Ginyard now. He is the executive director at the Alliance of Beverage Licensees. Very pleased to welcome him. Hi, Jeff. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks a lot for coming on. So you guys represent like the bars, right? Yeah, yeah. We work on behalf of BC's private liquor industry. So bars, pubs, nightclubs, hotel liquor licensees, private liquor stores, and some restaurants as well. Okay, what did you think when you heard that announcement there from uh, Bonnie Henry a couple of weeks ago, stop serving liquor at 10 p.m.? Did you guys get any advance warning on that? No, unlike with previous uh, public health orders, we didn't really get much of an advance warning on this. No one really did, so that that was frustrating. But I guess I'd say a couple of things about it. So our initial reaction was, well, what what is the impact on our businesses and why 10 p.m.? And why can yeah. I serve food past 10 p.m. but not alcohol past 10 p.m., right? I mean, it's not like... Uh, the virus only wakes up at 10 and comes out for the late night uh, rounds. But what we found um, was first off economically, um, those last couple of hours of the night, if you're you know down in Vancouver or Yaletown or Granville Street, something like that, it can be up to say like 50% of your revenue can come in after 10 p.m. Most bars, it's somewhere uh, close to 25% or you go into even like rural areas, it's 10%. So given that half of the industry is actually losing money right now, it has significant financial consequences. Um, and we're really worried that if we don't find a way to get uh, a couple of extra hours of service, maybe move 10 p.m. to midnight, then um, you know, a bunch of these bars and, and places are not going to be there by the end of the year. And, you know, what, I, what I kind, um, yeah. sorry, go ahead. Yeah, what kind of revenue hit have you guys uh, suffered there as a result? Well, the, um, I understand that every single bar or restaurant that's open right now is at maybe half of what their previous capacity was. Uh, these new restrictions cut that in half again for a lot of places. So you're dealing with places, I mean, even last um, last week or when Dr. Henry made that announcement, immediately that evening, restaurants 
uh, lost a lot of their late seatings because people are coming in for dinner at 9 or 9.30 and you can no longer have a bottle of wine with dinner, right? Because uh, right. you get cut off early for it. Um, I think part of the frustration out there in the industry, and this is different than some other jurisdictions. I mean, British Columbia's uh, pubs and bars and restaurants have been operating quite successfully for the past several months under the most stringent public health protocols ever issued. And the listeners have seen that, right? I mean, most people wearing masks, you're limited to group sizes, no more than six, two meters apart and all that. Our frustration was that, um, you know, maybe, yeah, there's a couple of bad operators out there, and I'm glad we're, we're focusing on enforcement on that, but you know, the, the behavior of some of the customers is really starting to tick us off, right? We had to remind people over and over and over again to, you, know, you can't mingle with your friends, you have to sit down and all that. Um, and, uh, I mean, that's one of the reasons we're in favor of fines for customers who are not following the rules, because that's the reason that the, the curve is, is going in the wrong direction again, right? Um, and although we're all the How would you do that? How would you enforce that, fines for customers? Well, it's difficult, obviously, as, a, oh. as an operator, right? Um, but... I mean, what are you, you going to do? If, like, if someone gets up and goes to another table and talk to their friends, you, you call a you call a cop or a bylaw enforcement officer, and they show up and write a ticket. I mean, I mean, I guess that's that how that would work. But honestly, what we oh. do in these cases is we have a three strikes in your policy in almost all of our okay. establishments. Um, you, if you don't follow the rules of the staff, they just ask you to leave because you're putting the health of the staff at risk as well as the, the patrons, right? And um, so I guess the bottom line concern, though, for us is that based on the announcement last week, we're we're really concerned that this is going to lead to closures of you know a few yeah. thousand businesses, and we're going to lose tens of thousands of jobs out of it at a time when this industry has already been kicked repeatedly. Wow. Um, and it's it's easy to pick on the hospitality industry, um, and I think you know that's just a, not my experience out there. I think they're they're doing an incredible job exceeding those public health protocols, and um, there's been some low exposure risk at some establishments, but for the most part. Uh, I just haven't seen that evidence out there. And I've been out, you know, touring our members' establishments, and they're doing, they're doing a really great job. So shutting us down at 10 p.m. was pretty frustrating. Um, and we're going to hope to keep working with Dr. Henry and her team on finding a better path forward that's, uh, okay. that balances what she needs with financial health of the industry. Speaking of Jeff Ginyard, he represents BC's pubs and bars about the new serving restrictions for alcohol in the province. Is, is this disproportionately hurting some... I don't know, like if you got a busy late night crowd coming in for a late night drink, like I'm thinking like, I don't know, downtown or in the, the entertainment yeah. district downtown, would it, would it hurt them more than say like, you know, a neighborhood pub? Yeah, it's it's killing those uh, establishments to be completely blunt with you, right? I mean, whether you're a pub or a restaurant or bar, if you're in a busy entertainment district, it's a late night environment, right? right, um, right. And these business owners have spent thousands of dollars on plexiglass, personal protective equipment and uh, most of them, there's been no issues with their establishments. And you can imagine as an owner, if you're doing everything you can to abide by these protocols, and then, uh, you know, the doc, permit health officer says, yeah, thanks for doing that, but uh, no, we're just shutting everybody down because of the actions of a few delinquents and, and outliers, right? So I really think that the solution here is to focus enforcement on those not following the rules, whether they're British Columbians or those operators. And, um, I mean, if it's a pub or a restaurant out there, it's not doing what they should. I mean, I would, we've been clear, you know, report them to us. We'll report them to provincial health officers and we'll take their liquor license away. Like that kind of stuff cannot happen. Um, but we're talking about a few businesses, right? And yeah. uh, there's over 9,000 pubs, bars, and restaurants in this province. And they're all being caught with this. Very well, that, that's, rush. that kind of anticipates another question I had for you, because I, I just wonder if sort of a, a blanket serving policy like this for the whole province uh, is fair. Like, I'm just wondering, 
if you've got a, mm-hmm. a busy bar downtown in the in the entertainment district of downtown Vancouver, and, and you got some knuckleheads there who are breaking the rules, is that really yep. fair to a, a small neighborhood pub in in a, in a small town in northern British Columbia yeah. where there's maybe not a lot of COVID? But your thoughts? I, I completely agree. I mean, I think there are more cases. I mean, I live downtown Vancouver. There's probably more cases in my neighborhood than there is in Smithers or Terrace or Fernie combined. Right. right. So it doesn't it doesn't make any sense to me that we're just capturing the entire brush with this. And um, I know I think part of it is um, honestly just resource issues on the behalf of the provincial health officer. I know how overwhelmed they are, how hard they're working. They would contact us and some remember sometimes when there was a potential, you know, someone kind of might have come in. And, and remember, we're not making the virus in the kitchen here and putting it into the, the salads or something. I mean, people come in with it and we found out, OK, someone came in, we have to do the contact tracing. And it's always very broad. It says they came in you know, between these five days or something. So we have to go. Um, through our contact list, and we have hundreds of names, right? And then government was getting, our provincial health officers were getting overwhelmed during the contact tracings. I feel like they were just like, all right, this is an easier way, just shutting it down after 10 p.m. Um, okay. And I, uh, yeah, we just don't think it's fair, and I don't think it's practical or the right way forward. Okay, you mentioned that the key concern here is for businesses that could potentially go under, people lose their jobs. Have any pubs or bars in British Columbia shut down? Yeah, there's, uh, people are figuring it out right now, right? And I was just on a call this morning with some operators and say they're not even going to last a couple more weeks if this continues. Uh, I know one wow. chain here in um, uh, of about 10 pubs in British Columbia, they initially had about 20. Due to COVID, they've been down to about 10, and they shut eight of them um, temporarily until they're down to two until they can figure out how to make this work. Um, this is having significant financial ripples in our industry and significant costs. Uh, and we're not we're not just saying like you know let us open and make money. We're saying you know let, let's get to the table like we did to reopen this industry and come up with a set of protocols that work. If you have evidence that these these particular protocols don't work, let's let's find better well, ones. Like we're, well, when you put that to I, I guess the provincial health officer's office, what response do you get? I mean, are they sh- showing any willingness to have any wriggle room to to amend this order? Yeah, I think they're they're nervous right now. It's what it feels like to me because uh, the cases are going up. You know, kids are going back yeah. to school, and we don't know the impact on that. So they're they're just picking some low hanging fruit and saying, well, there was cases mm-hmm. in this sector. Let's do it right. But they're not imposing similar restrictions on retail or behaviors in senior centers and complexes and other places. Like it's just it feels like we're being singled you, out because we're uh, places yeah. where people gather. All pubs, bars, and restaurants must operate a table service only, Mr. Speaker except for takeaways. Together with all hospitality venues, they must close at 10 p.m. All right, that's uh, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson there, of course, announcing those new restrictions in the United Kingdom. Last call for alcohol in the UK, 10 p.m. That'll be the cutoff time for last call to get your last pint. Similar to the rule here, Bonnie Henry has brought in a liquor-serving cutoff 10 p.m. in British Columbia. We're hearing now how it's hurting a lot of bars, pubs, and restaurants. My Jeff, my uh, my guest is Jeff Ginyard. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. Ryan in Vancouver. Hi, Ryan. Hey, how's it going? Good. Go ahead. Um, this is definitely having a trickle-down effect. Uh, I personally work in the wine industry. I work for a BC winery. And at the beginning of COVID, it was near impossible to sell anything in. And then when things started to come back, at, even at 50% capacity, it, my numbers just tanked. And the movement of stuff of my product dropped off to nil. And now with this 10 p.m. thing, most of my restaurant clients keep telling me and have been for months, we don't know if we're going to be open until, uh, even if we're going to be open tomorrow. Uh, and come October 1st, when the rent relief ends up, they're even more concerned. So 
I'm concerned because I work in the industry and I just see that I'm on the trickle down effect of all that. Okay, that's very interesting. Do you say you work for a, a winery? A BC winery. Yeah. A BC winery. Yeah. Is there any danger of? I mean, or any? Could any? Could some wineries go out of business? Is that possible? We're pretty choked up. That's for sure. Oh. We're 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 cutting our crop this year. We know that much because wow. we have a surplus now. Because yeah, there's a huge trickle down effect, and it's not just me. Like. I work for BC Winery, but if you're in an import agency, that is super crushed right now because it's all trickle down, right? These restaurants are at least fifty percent of our business. Okay, thanks a lot for the call. Okay, thanks a lot, Jeff. uh, Interesting point there about the trickle down—that it's not just the frontline servers, I guess, in a bar or pub, but you know, there's an industry behind this. Yeah, and I'm well aware of that. And uh, it's—I mean—he's entirely correct, right? So. Um, a lot of BC's or uh, restaurants and bars and pubs, we order products directly from BC's liquor manufacturers, the craft breweries, uh, the craft distilleries, and, and the wineries. Uh, so we become a significant piece of business for them, and there's products you can only get in restaurants and bars. And um, our industry was shut down completely for a while at the beginning of this pandemic. And now when our sales are on average half of what they used to be, uh, yeah, it has ripple effects all throughout the, the liquor industry, right? And, um, and it sort of keeps saying, like, you know, I know what's happened in other jurisdictions. But here in British Columbia, we had an industry group come together yeah. and put, put in some protocols that would make sense for all of us. I mean, they didn't do that in the UK in the same way. Uh, it is safer to go to a bar in British Columbia than it is in a lot of other jurisdictions. Um, and there's an important economic reality to this, right? And we're just going to shut things down. There's a massive cost to BC's hospitality industry alone, um, not to mention all the suppliers. So, yeah, it's a serious okay. concern. Okay, back to the phone lines. Peter in a Soyuz uh, vineyard country there. Hiya, Peter. Hi. Uh, there's a lot of nightclubs that are even worse than strip clubs where the the virus can spread a lot more. Like Toronto and Vancouver, there's like uh, 500 cases, and um, it, they're trying to do contact tracing and all of that. Why don't they shut all the nightclubs and the strip clubs, even though it's going to hurt their business, if you don't do that and the virus gets worse, every business is going to have to shut and go in complete lockdown if you don't get in front of it. Okay, thanks for the call. Jeff, they have shut down the nightclubs, right? Yeah, so there's a couple things about nightclubs. I mean, first off, when people say nightclubs, we think of you know what a pre-COVID nightclub is like with a bunch of young people and a sweaty dance floor. That's yeah. not been allowed in BC for a while. Um, most of them had been operating, and the big ones have just stayed closed, but the smaller ones have reopened as kind of like a lounge format where you had right. to give it as a VIP experience with segmented booths and all that, no moving between them. Uh, but yeah, those got shut down a couple weeks ago from Dr. Henry, and um, that impacts public. What about the strip, strip, clubs are shut, strip clubs are shut down, aren't they? <laughs> you know, it's a bit of a gray area at the moment. We're trying to get some clarity on that because the order refers to um, nightclubs and not strip clubs, and strip clubs don't have the same kind of contact intensity, right? I mean, people don't go to a strip club um, to dance personally, right? They're <laughs> there to witness some entertainment. So uh, yeah. these are the small little things that happen. On, but um, I don't know. I mean, we've had some COVID outbreaks at strip clubs. That's kind of weird. Okay, John and Ladner. Yeah. Hiya, John. Hi. Hi, go ahead. Yeah, I... Uh don't think this uh, restriction on the bars, you know, at 10 o'clock, bars and restaurants, I go for dinner, you know, late, I'm not allowed to have a drink. That's not right, you know. Like, like Bonnie Henry isn't being fair to the people that don't go out and party. Okay, John, okay, thank you for the call. Okay, Jeff, you mentioned, like, okay, what if someone comes in for a late-night meal at at 9 p.m. or whatever? 
mm-hmm. would they not be allowed to order? I mean, that you'd be an hour before last call, so you could order yeah. a bottle of wine, couldn't you? You could, yeah, but you yeah. can see how those evenings go, right? You pop in at nine o'clock, maybe you yeah. get your first, you know, get a pre dinner cocktail at 9.15 or something, and then, um, you know, if you don't get that order at the right time, you won't have it, or if you want an after-drink dinner, or if you come in a little bit later. So, yeah, it could definitely impact um, impact it. And what we have seen, though, is it's not just about that individual not being able to order a drink. We have literally seen reservations for late-night dining drop by over 30%, right? We're talking about an industry that is already 50% of it is probably not going to make it to the end of the year because they're losing money. They can't afford to lose that extra okay. seating. That's the direct impact. Squeeze in one more. Malcolm and Swasson, hi. Jeff, here's a question for you. So bad apples are bad apples regardless. They're always going to be bad apples. So yep. let's say in the dis- in the financial, not financial district, but in the entertainment district, you get a group of bad apples. They get kicked out because they're being bad apples. What's to stop them from taking their anal bad apple attitude to another bar okay. and affecting All right, them? Jeff, How do Jeff, you guys got, control that? we got 30 seconds, Jeff. Go ahead. Um, yeah, we've had that problem, but luckily, if you're uh, part of our industry and you're doing it in something like downtown Vancouver, um, all those bars make you scan your ID before you even go in, um, and we use it to okay. you know, kick organized crime like years ago, so we'll be able to track mm-hmm. you going between places. If they kick you to one, we'll kick you to them all. Jeff, thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Have a great day.